Thank you, Ashton. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. Uh, if you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you join with us. And if you are new, uh, yes, I did go see the new Batman movie on opening night, and it was far too late, and I'm getting old, and I need to not do that anymore. But uh, yeah, so I uh, had an opportunity, as Myung mentioned, uh, Myung and I and a group of guys were able to go uh, spend some time out of town last week in sunshine in Phoenix and feel um, encouragement or just that kind of rest and that time away, and that was good. I'm thankful for Pastor John preaching the word for us and everybody who serves and, and takes care of so many things around this church. Uh, it, it really is such an encouragement, as Myung was saying earlier, just to be a part of this body as well as the larger body of Christ. It really is such a joy and a, an encouraging reminder. And um, as, as we're continuing on our sermon series called All Things New... Just by way of reminder that the heart behind this series is to seek to not get, quote, back to normal after two years of a pandemic and all sorts of stress. Our, our heart is to not get back to normal, but to experience the renewal of the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel in all areas of life. And so this is a topical series where we're kind of addressing, we, we address renewed minds, renewed hearts, renewed bodies. We spend some time in different relationships, marriage, parenting, singleness, dating, friendships. Now we're kind of getting into certain practical things with money and work and next week, Sabbath rest. And, and serving and all these kind of more practical um, topics. And I just wanted to give you guys a quick heads up. If you want to start reading ahead or start studying ahead, um, we as an elder team decided last Thursday night that we will, the next book of the Bible, because that's what we love to do. Our, we, mostly we love to just take books of the Bible and kind of go through them line by line and verse by verse. And so we have heard the demands of the people, and we're going to go through the book of Leviticus next. So um, gird thy loins and... Uh, also, if anyone has access to sheep or goats that we can borrow, no reason, just let me know. So, uh, yeah, uh, I found a really, really helpful book, and I'm talking about the possibility of even purchasing like a case of these books and uh, maybe handing them out as a way for you all to start studying and reading ahead. But the book of Leviticus is awesome, and I am not joking. I've, I've spent most of this year kind of reading and rereading the book of Leviticus, and I have found myself in tears at multiple points at the goodness of the gospel of Jesus on display in the people's choice, uh, Leviticus. You know why we do in Leviticus? It's because y'all give up on your Bible reading plan in Leviticus in March, and so coming after you. Okay. But today we're going to talk about the theme of work, and I wonder if as we enter into this time, we're going to be looking in Genesis 1 through 3 at a variety of different passages. You know, you, you have had your work week, you've put your hand to the proverbial plow, so to speak, in a number of ways, and as you gather in here, you might be carrying some of the weariness from that work. Maybe you're already preemptively dreading going back to work tomorrow on a Monday, and so let's just do this. Let's just take a moment. I'm just going to pause silently before the Lord. We're going to invite his spirit to calm our rest and anxious hearts and minds, and so that we can enter into this time of teaching with um, an awareness of his presence and the finished work of Jesus. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer right now. I'm just going to start by holding silently for just a moment. So Lord, we bring our hearts before you now. Would you make us aware of your presence even here as we come to the scriptures to encounter you? Lord, some of us, are, our minds are weighted and, and busy and restless, thinking about all the things we have to do. 
We take all those thoughts and we just hand them over to you right now. But some of us, our bodies are tired from the work that we've had this week. And so we ask that you'd help us to even experience your renewal in our physical selves. But some of our hearts are weary, sad over things that didn't go the way we wanted them to. We bring those burdens to you now and we lay them at the foot of the cross. Lord, for myself, I pray that you would help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word and let each and every single one of us um, be receptive to be transformed by the power of your word uh, as brought to life by your Holy Spirit. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, work sure has changed over the last couple of years, has it not? That's kind of one of the the bigger understatements. Uh, The moment that the, the COVID thing hit, um, that was one of the very first things of everyone, you know, figure out how to Zoom to your work, figure out how to work from home, figure out how to, you know, I remember my, my kids' school going remote and the teachers being remote and the teachers teaching my kids while their kids swung from the drapes in the background while my kids were not paying attention and just everything was so disrupted. I mean, there's huge construction projects going on for all these big office buildings. I remember talking with one of my friends who works in the tech industry about how Microsoft had gone, I think it's Microsoft had gone to like all open shared workspaces. We're all together. We're all in the same room. We're all collaborating. Just kidding. Go to a cell in a dungeon and go work by yourself in a cold shed out in your backyard. And it's just the way that work has been so disrupted over the last several years and continues to be disrupted. You know, the, the, what, you know, what's the supply chain shortages joke that ever, you can blame anything on supply chain shortages now, right? Like, oh, sorry, I missed your call, like supply chain shortages, or oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't go when light turned green, I just sat here because of supply chain shortages. Like, you can blame anything on that. But the reality is, is a lot of people are really struggling to figure out, like, how to even do your job as so many things in the world economy have been disrupted and, and, and people um, rethinking their work, people rethinking the what am I doing and why am I doing it and do I want to continue doing this? I mean, maybe I could just ask for a quick show of hands. How many of you at some point over the last couple of years have thought, am I really doing what I want to be doing for work? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Anybody had those thoughts? Okay, good, number of us. And honestly, all that the pandemic did was exacerbate pressures that we already feel. These things are, are common to man. I, I, I've kind of jokingly said that, you know, pastoring a church where there's a large number of, of men, particularly men in their 30s and 40s, no one in seminary warned me how much time I would have to spend shepherding men through their midlife crises. And uh, we can kind of joke about that, but it's actually a sociological, it's a, it's a real phenomenon where men reach a certain age, late 30s to mid 40s, and, and women go through something similar, but it's more pronounced in men, and just with shepherding men, it's something I've noticed and encountered. And you get the three, the three W's, the crisis of uh, the wife, or the worship, or the work, right? The stereotype is the, the guy, you know, he, he divorces his wife and trades in for a younger model kind of thing, and, or, the, or the worship is a crisis of faith. I don't, what, you know, what have I been taught? What do I believe? But work, 
Work is a big part of that season of life of, am I doing what I want to be doing? Should I be doing this job? Is this what I'm called to do? Is this what the Lord has for me? Do I even like this work that I'm putting my hand to day after day after day? Friends, sometimes we can gather here on a Sunday morning and we can say something, you know, I've, I've done this. I could say something like, oh, just leave all that out there behind. Let's just focus on the Lord right now. But I actually want to say the exact opposite today. Let's bring all of that into the presence of the Lord right now. So that when we leave this room, when we leave this building and we go back into our weeks, we go into our work with a keen awareness of God working in us and through us because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the simple big idea that I want for us today. It's this. Because of Jesus, our work finds renewed meaning and joy. Because of Jesus, our, our work, the labors and the things that we put our hands to do, we find renewed meaning and joy. And so I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about just the nature of work. I want to talk about the calling of work, and then I want to talk about the fruitfulness of work, okay? The nature of work. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis 1. We're going to be kind of doing some selections from the first few chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2, I should say. We'll be in in Genesis 2 and and 3. But the first thing I want to say about the nature of work is simply this. Work comes from God. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 1, it says, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation." Just heads up, next week we're going to really focus on the resting aspect and the Sabbathing aspect. But for today, I want you to notice that work comes from God himself. If you study the the origin stories of the world from the ancient world, lots of different ways that the world came into existence, the the most common two that you'll find, whether it's Egypt or Assyria or Ugarit, you'll find these creation myths, and it's usually either the gods are in battle or other gods are like sleeping together. Those are the normal ways that the world comes into uh, into being according to the ancient mythologies uh, that the, the, the biblical people were surrounded by. So some gods are fighting, one god lops off you know, a part of another god's body, that part of the body falls off and turns into, I don't know, the universe. Uh, or or uh, you know, other gods are they're kind of fooling around and messing around, and one of them gives birth to you know, the universe. And so that's how the world comes into being. But the authors of the scripture, inspired by God himself, tell us that no, it's not like that. There's much more intentionality from our God. That the true creator God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, created all things out of, out of uh, his character and his nature, which is to work and to do things intentionally. If you read through all of Genesis 1 and even into Genesis 2, the, the, the intentionality of God, like a skilled craftsman, like a skilled artisan, like a skilled manufacturer, for those of you who work with your hands, for those of you who do maybe more manual labor types of jobs, there is such dignity in that work because it reflects the nature of God himself. Work is a good thing that comes from God. And when we work, we're actually reflecting God. Again, other ancient mythologies talked about our work because they they said, you know, the gods made everything, 
And then the gods kind of got lazy, so they created humans to be like slaves who would just work and, and actually sacrifice in most of the ancient world. Sacrifice, they would sacrifice animals or they'd sacrifice uh, uh, fruit and grains because they're like, well, the gods are hungry and they need something to eat. So they would sacrifice these things to the gods. Whereas the one true God of the Bible, he says, I don't need those things from you. You can sacrifice as an act of love and worship. I don't, I don't need that. We are not automatons. We're not slaves in that sense. We are created in the image and likeness of God, a God who himself works. The other thing about the nature of work, or a couple of things about the nature of work, second thing is that work is intended to be worship. In Genesis 2, skipping down to verse 15, it says the Lord God, after he'd created Adam, he took the man, it says he placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And that doesn't mean like work it like dance moves. It's like to work the ground. You guys know that? That was bad. Uh, I I heard it and then I was embarrassed and I was like, I could just move on, but I can't. So God created the world. He created the heavens and the earth. And on the earth, there's a land, there's a region called Eden. And within Eden, there is a garden. And that is where Adam and Eve Live And, and many scholars and, and theologians point out the idea that this is, this is the, the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, is reflecting the way that the tabernacle works, right? You have the, the whole tabernacle area, then you have the holy place, then you have the most holy place. And that garden is the most holy place. And Adam and Eve uh, placed in the garden to work it and to watch over it. And those verbs there are very interesting. The first one for work is the Hebrew word obdah. It's, uh, it's a very common word. It occurs almost 300 times in the Old Testament. And work is one of the ways that it's translated. The most common way that it's translated is to serve. But actually 70 plus times in our English Bibles, that Hebrew word is translated as worship. To worship. To serve and to work in Worship. And the second verb, to watch over, is the Hebrew word shemer. It's really common. Like 466 times in the Old Testament that word is used. And it is translated as to keep, to protect, to guard, or to watch over. This is the language of a priest. Worshiping and guarding are the exact same verbs that are used about the Israelite priests from the tribe of Levi when they would serve in the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 3. If you want to flip there, it'll be up on the screen too. Numbers chapter 3. This is the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, bring the tribe of Levi near and set before them Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard. There it is. That's Shamar over him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or obdah in the tabernacle, as they worship at the tabernacle. They shall guard, shamar, all the furnishings of the tent and meeting, and they shall shamar, keep guard over the people of Israel as they obdah at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And boy, we're going to get into some of this stuff when we tackle Leviticus. But the point here being that when Adam is placed in that garden in the land of Eden, it was a priestly function. This is not just work 
for work's sake, this is work as worship. How many of you know that your work is intended to be worship unto God? No matter what you're doing, whether you teach in a school, whether you design airplanes, whether you uh, pull cables, whether you, whatever you do, whether you uh, tend to the household and your children, your work is intended by God to be worship. But we also know, in this nature of work, sadly, that our work is corrupted. Flip ahead to Genesis chapter 3. You know what happens. The, the serpent, the Nahash, the, 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 the spiritual being, comes in physical form to the man and the woman. He tempts them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, to define right and wrong on their own terms instead of trusting in God. And they take, and Eve eats, and she gives them to her husband Adam, who was there, who was not protecting. That is the whole point that God told him to do, to keep guard, to worship, and to protect, to keep sacred space safe from the presence of evil. They failed to do it, and so God shows up. And God administers consequences. The first part is God cursing the serpent, saying there's going to be hostility between the serpent and the woman. But fortunately, there would be a descendant, an offspring, who would crush the head of the serpent eventually. But I want you to focus in on verse 16. Notice this. He says, I, He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains, and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. The, the natural fruitfulness of the womb, think about the way like fruitfulness, the, the fruit of the womb, the way that God uniquely designed women's bodies to be able to uh, carry and to, to reproduce is now, the, it's messed up. It's all messed up. And even the relationship with the husband, it's, it's just not how it's supposed to be. But also notice, God does not say the woman is cursed or childbirth is cursed. We need to be more theologically careful than that. Even reading ahead, look at what he says to the man. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you did not shamar, you did not keep watch and protect, and I commanded you do not eat from it, the ground is cursed. Mankind is not cursed. Women, your childbirth is not cursed. Men, you are not cursed. In the passage, read it carefully. The serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed. Now, we feel the effects of that. We feel the effects of that because we did not, as humanity, keep watch and worship and guard the way that we were, we were intended to. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Instead of fruit, it's going to be thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be difficult. Until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Show of hands. How many of you have had like a day at work in the last week or two where you're like, yep, I feel that? Anybody? Man, even like just something as simple as like, <laughs> like coming into the kitchen the other day and I'm like, I just loaded the dishwasher. Where did, the, where did this come from? Genesis 3! Like it's just so frustrating. My, my, my work is unique too just in 
shepherding and leading a church. There's days where it's so much joy and so much, like, there's, there's times where I'll come home and talk with my wife, Aaron Lynn, and be like, oh, I got to, like, pastor people today. And there's other days where it's like, I got to spreadsheet today. Ugh. Some of you like spreadsheets, and we have a prayer team for you after the service. So <laughs> the point is this. As priests... Their work was to serve in worship and to protect sacred space, to bring a blessing. But because they failed to do that, now a curse has been unleashed. And we all feel the effects of it in our work. We are not cursed. The ground is cursed. Because we failed to live out our God-intended purpose. And so as we think of work, we have to hold that intention. It's a good thing created by God. But we experience the effects of a cursed ground. The most important thing about the nature of work is that it's redeemed in Christ Jesus. It's redeemed in Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting to think about, um, we don't get a full picture. There's a lot of desire sort of language for Adam and for Eve, for Eve in particular. Um, when, when she sees the fruit that she's not supposed to eat of, it says she, she saw that it was, you know, good. It was pleasing to the eye. It was, it was, it was uh, you know, uh, good tasting. There's all this kind of desire language. We don't get a lot of the motivation for Adam. All that we're told is Adam was just standing there. He was there with his wife and he did not do what he ought to do. And for some of us, the relationship that we have with work is just laziness. We just don't do what we ought to do. And it's, it's a failure. It's a failure to do what we ought to do. But praise God that he did not leave us in that state of failure. He did not leave us in that state of laziness. God sent his son Jesus to come and to live the perfect life, to be the perfect high priest, to serve in worship and work and guarding and protecting so that all who put their faith in him might be redeemed. If you'll allow me to jump to the New Testament in Ephesians 2, this very well-known passage the Apostle Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is God's gift. It's not from your works, so nobody can boast. How many of you know your works are what got you into the mess? The only thing that your works contributed to the work of salvation is the need to be saved. We can't work ourselves out of the mess we have created. We can't work ourselves out of the debt that we have built up. It is not from our works, so we cannot boast. For we, it says, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Pause right there. That language of God's workmanship, it's got echoes of Genesis 1. It's got echoes of Genesis 2 where God is crafting things and he's making the world and he's fashioning the garden. And in the work of redemption, it says that God is at work through Christ Jesus to turn us into what? New creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are new men. We are new women through the work of God in his son, Christ Jesus. And now, with that workmanship that God does, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto renewed good works in Christ Jesus. So in him, your work and your, the things that you put your energies to do find new life and new meaning in him. 
And if you're here today, if you're listening online and you've not trusted in Jesus for your salvation, understand that the invitation is to not trust in your own works, but to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that he lived the perfect life that you and I have not lived, that he died on a cross shedding his blood as a payment for our our failure, as a sacrifice in the most holy place, and he rose again showing that God is powerful, and if he offers you forgiveness, you can trust his offer of forgiveness because he raised his son Jesus from the dead. And if you haven't yet trusted in him, I'm pleading with you, come come talk to me or come talk to someone else or just simply tell the Lord, Lord, my works have gotten me into huge trouble. I've contributed to the mess of the world. I've contributed to the mess that is my own life. I can't do it. I trust in Jesus' work on my behalf. Our work is redeemed in Christ Jesus. And if you are this, this person, this workmanship, this renewed human being, well then guess what? We've got work to do. And it's a joy. It's a joyful work. So let me take a moment and talk about the calling of work. You know, the word calling is interesting because uh, think about how we use this word colloquially, vocation. You ever heard? Not vacation. That's, that's next week. <laughs> vocation. Ooh, that's a little mini-series. Vocation versus vacation. All right. Vocation. Think about the word vocation, right? We talk about, oh, what's your vocation? What do you do for work? The word vocation, it actually comes, the Latin, it's the same word as vocal, which is calling. Your vocal, your vocation, or your calling. And and here's what I want to do. I actually want to put, I've got four things to point out. I want to put all four of them up on the screen, if you would. Can you jump ahead all the way to the uh, the fourth one with all these individual callings? Because... Here's the problem. The Bible speaks in a number of different ways about our calling, but as products of a very individualistic post-enlightenment Western society, we focus almost exclusively on the last one, the individual calling. But friends, when we talk about our calling as human beings, the Bible speaks about humanity being called. Again, go back to Genesis 1, all the language of God speaking and God speaking and God calling the name and Adam calling his wife Eve. There's all of this language of calling. As human beings, we were created for a purpose, to be image bearers who rule over God's creation, to bring order to the chaos. That's what that word, fill the earth, subdue it. That word subdue, that's a pretty intense word if you study it out in the Hebrew. That word subdue is used in like battle passages, like go to war, conquer. There's God's, God said, I created everything. Here's the land of Eden. Here's the garden. Now take this like perfection and go out and spread it throughout all of the whole globe. Go bring order to chaos. How many of you know as human beings, image bearers of God, you are called to bring order to chaos. You are called to bring God's wise stewardship, rule, and care over all things. And then we talk about being called into his kingdom, called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. For those of us who have been saved, we recognize what we failed to bring order to the chaos. We actually unleashed more chaos, but through the Messiah, we're now called into kingdom work. And what is that kingdom work? Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. Announce the news of Jesus, baptize them, teach them to obey. Friends, our calling as members of the kingdom is to go let everybody know that there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new king in charge and his name is Jesus. 
So as humanity, we have a calling. As Christians, as people of the Messiah, we have a calling. But then even within individual communities, we have a calling. Joining together in a role. We were reading as a staff in Deuteronomy 33 uh, on Tuesday, and there was the prayer of Moses as he's blessing the people before he passes away and before they, he hands off to Joshua and they enter into the promised land. And I just was intrigued to see the way that Moses prayed different sorts of blessings over each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. That all of the people of Israel collectively are the people of God and they have those humanity and kingdom vocations, those callings. But, but within that, he says, Levi, you're going to be the ones that lead in the worship service. And Judah, you're going to be the ones that have royalty and kings who rule over the people. And I can't remember which one. I think it was Gad. Is, you're going to have soldiers who defend and, and another tribe. You're going to have merchants that go. And, and within the broader humanity, within the kingdom, there are communities who are called to certain activities. I think that principle even applies to various local churches. A local church like ours can't do everything and be everything. There's too much work of the kingdom to be done. Amen? And that's some of what the the communal discernment over the renewal project for us as a church is. Like, Lord, help us as a community discern our collective calling. And then finally, there is the individual calling. You as an individual human being, what gifts have you been given by the the Lord? How has he uniquely fashioned and crafted you so that you can use those gifts to build up others? The problem is, in our hyper-individualistic society, we take all those other pieces and we put the weight of them all on you as an individual. Friends, there's great freedom. There's a great pressure relief of knowing that the whole weight of the world is not on your shoulders. You're a part of humanity. You're an image bearer of God. You've been saved by Jesus. You're part of his kingdom. You're part of a community. We shoulder the load together. And then within that, yes, the Lord has fashioned you and crafted you in a unique way, given you certain gifts, given you certain things, and then has called you to use those gifts for the good of those in your life. Now, some, I want to get really practical here. I'm going to turn the corner and get really practical because then you, you might say, okay, well, this individual, like those, those other ones, that's great. You know, I, I understand that I'm called into, you know, kingdom. I understand that I'm called as a human to, to, to bring order to chaos. I understand even that I'm part of a community that has a calling. But what about this individual part? Some of us get stuck. Can I ask for a, a show of hands? How many of you have ever just kind of felt stuck? Lord, I don't really know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Anybody? It's a lot of us. Okay. I want to get practical. Okay. Three things practically and then a, a, a little matrix that might help you. First of all, in discerning your individual calling, the starting point is to do what is already commanded. Again, might I remind you that we live in quite possibly the most individualistic, or I could even say selfish or self-focused society in the history of the world. There is so much that is already commanded If you just focused on, Lord, here are the things you command us to do as humans, here's the things you command us to do as Christians, you could fill up a lot of your time and you could spend a lot less time stressing about yourself and what you're supposed to do. So start with just doing what's commanded. Serve one another. Pray. Study the scriptures. Go feed the poor. Serve the church. There's so much that could be done that doesn't depend on you seeing a handwriting on the wall or having a fleece laid out and getting you know, the, the ground dry and the fleece wet or the fleece dry and the ground wet. There's so much that can already be done by just doing what is commanded. Number two, just do something. 
How's that for some real specific advice, okay? What I mean is this. Oh, I just, oh, I'm just waiting to hear the Lord and discern what my calling is supposed to be. Well, are you, are, do you have a job? No. I'm just waiting to hear from the Lord and discern what my calling is supposed to be. Like, okay. Many people, I've experienced this far too often where people wait to do anything until they've heard some sort of clear word from the Lord. In my experience, so this is just me speaking kind of from personal experience and pastoral experience, many people stumble their way into their individual calling by just trying some things. How do you know if you're gifted in something? How do you know if you're called in something if you never try anything? In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Start putting one foot in front of the other and let the Lord lead and guide and steer you. I love hearing people say things like, man, I never in a million years would have chosen to do X or Y or Z, but now that I landed here, man, I really, I really love it or I really feel a sense of joy or, or God's pleasure in it. And number three, be flexible. Seasons come, seasons go, giftings may come and giftings may go. I mean, I even talked a little bit ago about the, the, the midlife crisis. I wish there was a better term for it because maybe it's, you know, it's the, it's the halftime review or something, right? It's, it's, I just need to look and say like, okay, Lord, what have I been doing? And is that what you still want me to do? And maybe there's a, a new calling and a new season. There's some new giftings that have shown up. I don't know. Be flexible. Don't be, don't be so locked into this. Well, this is the one thing I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. Maybe, maybe the Lord will have something new for you. Let me get even more practical. As you're looking to find your calling, here's a helpful rubric that I have used over the years, and it's this. Look for the overlap between gifting, passion, and opportunity. Like a Venn diagram, right? You think like the three circles that kind of overlap. Gifting, what you're good at. Passion, what you care about. And opportunity, the circumstances you find yourself in. Now, you may find yourself in a situation where you have the giftings and you have the passion, but you don't have the opportunity. So what should you do then? Probably just wait, persevere. Maybe the Lord will bring the, bring the opportunities. Maybe you're, maybe you're not quite in the right spot. Maybe you're not in the right season. Maybe the Lord is saying, yeah, I've, I've gifted you and you've got this passion, but the time is not just yet. I would just encourage you to keep persevering, keep trying. Don't give up. Don't get weary. You know why the Bible uses so many agricultural metaphors? Fruit growing? Because God's a lot more patient than we are. And the more disconnected we are from farming and agriculture and the land, the harder it is to understand things like, hey, wait upon the Lord. What if you find yourself with passion and opportunity, but you recognize, I don't really have the gifts. I'm not very good at this. I really care about this thing. I've got the opportunity to do this thing, but I'm not, I'm not so good at it. Well, then I would encourage you to support those who do have the gifts. Find, find a way to partner with them. Find a way to, 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 to come alongside and cheer them on and encourage them when they're weary. It's like, I, like, I'm not very good at that, but I care about it so much, and our church is doing this thing, or there's this opportunity to serve, or there's opportunity to work. Use your passion to support them. What if you have the gifts to do something, and you have the opportunity to do something, but you're lacking the passion for it? That was like me in high school calculus class. I, w I could do it, and I had the opportunity. I had the 
state-mandated opportunity to do some calculus. I just hated it. (laughs) What if you find yourself in that sort of a situation? Well, a couple of options. Number one, you you may need to repent. Because your passionlessness, is that passionlessness? Yeah, I guess. I'll go with that. Your lack of passion. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Somebody's praying for me. (laughs) Your lack of passion may be because you've let your heart grow cold. And God has gifted you and he's given you this opportunity, but you just don't care. The other, maybe, maybe it's not a repentance thing. Maybe it is an opportunity just to partner with somebody else. Say, man, I need, I need their passion to help kind of stir my heart again to do it. Again, this is a practical thing. And I just encourage you in it to use, look, look for the overlap between gifting and passion and opportunity. All right, finally, the fruitfulness of work. Fruitfulness of work. I just want to remind you, okay, again, we're going to go to the Lord's table here in a minute. We're going to sing a few more songs, and then you're going to go home, and you've got to start prepping for your week. Some of your hearts just sank as I said that. But I mean to bless you. I mean to send you and prepare you with the joy of the Lord so that your work can be fruitful. I'll just point out four things. Number one, be mindful of the tension Work is good. Can I get an amen from the church? Let, let me actually, let's say this together. Let's, that was real, real disappointing. <laughs> We're going to say this together. Work is, I'll say, I'm going to say the first part. You repeat it back to me. I'll say the second part. Ready? Work is from God. Work is good. Work is corrupted. There's the tension. Yeah. It's hard to live in that tension. There are days when you find that joy, like, yeah, I get to go do this thing. I get to go serve. I get, and then there's other days like, ugh, thorns and thistles. Remind yourself of the tension. Work comes from God. Work is good, but it's been corrupted. The ground is cursed. Number two, and again, this is a lot more next week, but be mindful and obey the limits that God has set on your work. In Leviticus, it talks about not gleaning all the way to the very edges of your field, meaning don't squeeze every last penny out of your profit profit margin that you could. Some of you don't obey God's instruction to take a regular day of rest. Some of you are actually dishonoring the Lord by working too much. You need to repent. It is a sin. So obey God's limits. Work is good. And again, rest is the subject for next week, but I'm just teasing it out so you can feel guilty all week before you come next Sunday. I mean this seriously. We, we, man, we, we so, we don't honor the Lord by our work, with our work, by just working constantly. That was the children of Israel in slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out, he said, you're going to take a day of solemn rest. Some of you can't remember the last time when you had a 24-hour period where you didn't check emails or do your regular work. If you want to be fruitful in your work, obey God's limits. They're for your good. Number three, celebrate and memorialize. You know, as you look through the Bible, 
again, teasing out Leviticus here, there's all these festivals and they're tied to the harvest season or when, this, when, the, when, the barley fe- you know, when the barley crops come in, bring a bundle of barley and offer it as a grain sacrifice to the Lord. And then later in the year when the fruits come in, bring this fruit and bring it as a sacrifice to the Lord. You got these seasonal opportunities to celebrate and to memorialize a job well done. Now this is easier to do with certain jobs than others. For, you, for some of you, you spend all week just answering emails and phone calls. How do you celebrate and memorialize that? Probably by throwing your laptop into the Puget Sound. But somehow we have to figure out ways to pause and to celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for the results of the work, the fruitfulness of my labors that comes only because of your grace. So in addition to resting, we have to celebrate, celebrate and memorialize, set up rituals. And then lastly, worship as you work. Just as Adam was placed into the garden to work and to guard that sacred space, as you go into your week, you are called not to work as a slave in Egypt. You are called to worship as a redeemed son or daughter of the Most High God. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 3. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing who? The Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that it's from the Lord, you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we are saved, not by our own works, but by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, I pray that we would repent of our own fruitless works, we would more deeply trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and that you would even nourish us and strengthen us through this act of eating and drinking as we prepare to go into our weeks to work as unto you. We give you this time, in Jesus' name, amen.